Hello everyone and welcome to episode 580 of So You Want to Be a Writer, the podcast that's all about writing and publishing. My name's Valerie Koo. I'm CEO of the Australian Writer Centre, the world's leading centre for writing courses, and I'm your host. What have you been up to this week? I have been getting into the Christmas and holiday spirit, kind of, well, logistically speaking and practically speaking, I suppose, making plans, organising functions, well, because it's that time of year, isn't it? I've also been watching The Artful Dodger, which is currently streaming, it's a TV series on Disney Plus in Australia, and I've really been, you know, enjoying it. Um, it's an interesting take inspired by, you know, the story by Charles Dickens of Oliver Twist. And it explores what happens if Jack Dawkins, the artful dodger, you know, who was a pickpocket in England, and Fagin, you know, big character from Oliver Twist, make it to Australia in the 1850s. By now, the artful dodger is a surgeon. Yes, as in a medical doctor, a surgeon. Um, Anyway, it sounds a bit far-fetched, but the TV series is done very well and it's filmed mainly in Sydney, I believe. It stars Thomas Sangster Brody, and if you're thinking, oh, that sounds like a familiar name, well, he was the kid in Love Actually, the little kid in Love Actually, all grown up, uh, and he's the artful dodger, and he's excellent. It also stars some fantastic Australian actors, including Tim Minchin, uh, Damien Herriman, Miranda Tapsall, oh, and a lot more. Um, so yeah, if you feel inclined to watch this, it's on Disney+. Plus. Not sponsored at all, just letting you know what I'm watching. In addition to watching this, I'm also very excited about our Focus on webinar this week. This is Focus on Dual Timelines, and I love this series that we're doing because each webinar or each session delves into deep dives really deep into a particular aspect of writing craft. So this is very specifically on focusing on dual timelines. And it's all about how you can weave the past and the present together to create a good story because there are so many books these days that I'm reading that have dual timelines or multiple timelines. You know, that could be a time slip, it could be Um, was something that's, you know, set in the present, but also 20 years in the past. And managing two timelines can be tricky because you need some kind of consistency. You need some kind of narrative thread for both of them. And you need to know how much to have of each, right? And also practical things like, do you need two climaxes? Which one should open and close the story? So, oh, and a very important one, which tense is best. You might think, oh, it's a no-brainer. It's kind of obvious. Not necessarily because it depends on how you're telling your story. Anyway, the wonderful Pamela Freeman, who is just awesome and such an incredible director of creative writing at the Australian Writers' Centre and author of more than 40 books, she is taking this webinar, Focus on Dual Timelines. It's on this Thursday, the 14th of December. So 14th of December, 2023. These sessions are great because you get a solid hour where Pamela deep dives into that particular aspect of writing craft. And then there's 30 minutes of Q&A where you can ask all of your burning questions. So Thursday, the 14th of December, it's at 7pm to 8.30pm Sydney time or Sydney Melbourne time. And uh, if you want to find out more, go to writerscentre.com.au slash Focus on dual timelines. That's writercenter.com.au 
slash focus on dual timelines. All right, now it's time to welcome back Nat Newman, who is with us each week to give us her writing tip for the week. But what have you been up to, Nat? Um, well, I just had auditions actually for a play that I'm putting on next year. So that's very exciting. You're, what do you mean you're putting on a play? Where are you putting on a play? I wrote a play and, uh, actually, and this will come up in my writing tip, but I wrote a play and, Mm -hmm. uh, and it got accepted at the Lake Macquarie One Act Play Festival. So now I have Mm -hmm. to find, I've found a great director and now I just have to find some great actors to bring the play to life. So we had auditions uh, over the weekend for that. You just lazily wrote a play one day. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Over a few oh, years. <laughs> and did you, had you always wanted to write a play or has this been only since you've been performing in plays? It's definitely only since I um, started really getting into theatre this year. Um and because it made me really look at some of my stories in a whole new way, like some some stories now I look at them and I think I could write this as a short story and maybe a few people will read this. Or if I can turn this into a performance, um, you know, maybe 30, 40, 50, 100, 200 people could see it and that's going to be a whole different experience for them. So, yeah, it's been really interesting looking at my stories in this completely new medium, which I never, ever considered before. And, of course, even if you started off with, you know, 30, 40, 50, 200 people, it could then become the next Hamilton. (laughs) (laughs) It could. (laughs) You never know. (laughs) You never know. All right, what's your writing tip this week? Well, my writing tip's related because um, essentially my writing tip is this. Don't compare your drafts to published novels and I think this is something a lot of people do and it stifles them it stops you from even starting to write because you think I can't write anything as good as I don't know you know Anthony Trollope for me or (laughs) whoever your favorite author is you know Margaret Atwood I can't write anything as good as Margaret Atwood well you know Margaret Atwood writes drafts and you don't see those drafts and we don't know what those drafts look like so you should never ever compare your drafts to somebody else's published um, work and the reason I was really thinking about this is because um, when I was writing this play for this festival and I had a really strict deadline. I think I had two days. Um, I saw that entries were open and I had two days to write this play and I knew I wanted to submit something. So, oh my goodness, you you saw that <laughs> entries were open and the deadline was in two days and in those two days you wrote a play and it got yeah. accepted. Is Have yeah. I got that right? Yeah. You're not. <laughs> Oh my God. Yeah, okay. I am a bit nuts, but I did something really, really, really abnormal for me. Um, and I actually shared the first draft with my um, acting coach because he's obviously read loads and loads and loads of plays and he knows a lot about how plays um, actually kind of function, I suppose. Mm-hmm. And they are slightly different to um, to a short story or to a novel or even to an essay or whatever because you have to sort of leave breathing room for the director and for the actors to bring something to the story. A little bit like picture books as well. Mm. Um, so I sent him a very, 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 very rough first draft. And he's obviously read some of my stories and stuff. And so he knows that, you know, I'm, I'm an okay writer. And I think he was shocked when he saw the draft because he's not used to seeing what really rough writing looks like. And, um, and I said to him in advance, I said, listen, this is really rough. Um, please don't judge me on this, but I really need feedback because I need just um, some sort of help with the structure and how things are going to be laid out sort of thing. And so he came back with, you know, pages and pages, really great information for me to then use in my second draft. Wow. And the second draft that I sent him 
was obviously a billion times better than the first draft. But for him, it was really, really um, interesting to see the difference between the two because I think he sort of thought that writers just, what comes out just comes out. And mm. but without realizing how much work there is, like between the first draft and the second draft, uh, they're so different, so, so different. It, later drafts will obviously get more, more and more different as well. But for me, especially the difference between a first draft and a second draft is massive, mm. just massive. So yeah, yeah, so that was really interesting for him. And it's actually something that I've ended up doing in our creative writing stage one class and novel writing essentials um, is I actually share with um, our students two drafts of a short story that I've mm. written. Mm. And I think it's really, really useful for people to see, oh, wow, this is actually how different drafts can look and, and how, yeah. how much they change. So yeah. So useful, but also mm. great advice. Thank you so much for your time today, Nat. Cool. Thank you. Bye. Now we have our competition this week. I have three copies of The Summer Party by Rebecca Heath to give away for you. Okay, so unfolding in a seemingly perfect suburban setting where family secrets are better off concealed in the shadows, The Summer Party is an irresistibly captivating psychological thriller that will keep you hooked from start to finish. Here's the blurb. Perfect families are only as perfect as their best kept secrets. Summer 2000. The Whitlam siblings have it all and 16-year-old Lucy only wants one thing, to be close to them. Soon she's lazing around their impossibly large pool, wearing Annabelle's expensive clothes and having secret rendezvous with Harry until at their lavish clifftop party she sees something that could jeopardise it all. Winter 2020. One failed marriage later, Lucy is back in town and quickly lured back into the Whitlam's shiny world. But when a body washes up on the beach and someone seems determined to frame her for murder, keeping their secrets this time could cost her everything. Now that summer is over, is she with them or against them? All right, so there's a dual timeline story, right? Summer in the year 2000 and winter in 2020. Absolutely a dual timeline story, just like what we were talking about in the Focus On series. So I have three copies of The Summer Party to give away by Rebecca Heath. Entries close on the 18th of December. If you want your chance to win, just go to writercentre.com.au slash win and follow the instructions. And if you're at that URL in the future, there'll be some other fantastic um, competition for you to enter. That's writercentre.com.au slash win. And now... Are you ready for the word of the week? Well, I hope you are. Well, the word of the week this week is mellifluous. Mellifluous. M-E-L-L-I-F-L-U-O-U-S. Mellifluous. This is such a lovely word and it's one of those that sound kind of like what it means. So it's an adjective and it means sweetly or smoothly flowing, as in the singer had mellifluous tones. And because it's from the Latin meaning to flow with honey, it can also literally mean flowing with honey. So I was thinking about this word recently because if you're a regular listener, you will know that I was recently um, in Hawaii catching up with a friend of mine. Her name is Alison and she is an entertainment reporter based in LA, but um, she flew over to hang out with me in Hawaii. So I was playing this bit of a kind of a bit of a game with her running through all of the famous people that she had um, interviewed or basically 
saying names to her and then she would give me the rundown on whether she had interviewed them or not. And I was asking her about Jason Sudeikis from Ted Lasso. And, you know, in Ted Lasso, he speaks in a certain accent. I said, is that the way he normally speaks? And she said, oh, yes, he's quite mellifluous. I actually meant with the, you know, southern accent that he had. And she, when she understood that, she said, oh, no, he speaks with a regular American accent. But it just rolled off her tongue so easily, describing his voice as mellifluous. I thought, yeah, okay, that's going to be a word of the week. This podcast is brought to you by the Australian Writers' Centre, a world leader in writing courses. Our hugely popular course, How to Write About Murder, is all about creating more authentic action for your crime or thriller novel. Presented by award-winning crime author Candace Fox, this course covers nine modules of fascinating detail, taking you beyond the police tape to explore what motivates killers and how they go about their business. You'll also immerse yourself in the chase, from the murder scene and autopsy to the investigation that follows. Plus, because it's one of our on-demand courses, you'll get instant access and learn at your own pace with 12 months access to all course materials. You can find out more at writerscentre.com.au slash murder course. That's a fantastic course that is packed with information and will tell you everything that you need to know if you want to write about murder. And I thought that was relevant to our next guest because he has written a book called Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. And of course, there is a murder on it. Benjamin Stevenson is an award-winning stand-up comedian and author. His fourth and latest novel is Everyone on This Train is a Suspect. This follows the incredible success of his previous novel, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone. And that book has so far been sold in 27 territories around the world and will soon be adapted into a major HBO TV series. It was shortlisted for countless awards. And I've no doubt that Everyone on This Train is a Suspect will have similar success with its very clever narrative, unique voice, riveting mystery and laugh-out-loud humour. Both these novels are a slight departure from his traditional crime thrillers. His first novel was Greenlight, which was shortlisted for the Ned Kelly Award for Best Debut Crime Fiction, and his second novel was Other Side of Midnight, which we talked to him about back in episode 373 of So You Want to Be a Writer. Thanks so much for joining us today, Benjamin. No worries. Thanks for having me. Everyone on this train is a suspect. Uh, I have so many questions for you. Um, but first, let's just start with um, what is it about for those who haven't got their hands on a copy yet? Sure. So it sees six crime writers invited on the GAN, which is the famous train between Darwin and Adelaide through the desert, um, to attend a crime writing festival. So they're going to spend four days and three nights talking about murder mystery novels. But on the first night, one of the authors is murdered. So the remaining five authors decide that if they've spent their lifetime writing about murders, they may as well be the perfect fit to put their heads together and try and solve a real life one. But the issue that comes up is that, of course, if they all know how to solve a murder, then one of them certainly knows how to get away with it. So how do you find a killer on a train where all of the suspects know how to get away with murder is the concept of the book. 
Okay, your brain works in a really scary way, I think, sometimes <laughs> after reading your books. But um, this, of course, follows on from the incredible success of your previous book, um, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, and uh, which, you know, I want to talk about that as well because it's gone gangbusters. How did you come Why did? How in the world did you come up with the GAN and writers and a festival, um, where did that spark of inspiration come from? Yeah, so in the first book, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, the idea is is sort of that somebody who really loves murder mysteries finds themselves trapped in a real-life one. And how could you apply a knowledge of Sherlock Holmes and Poirot and Egg Allan Poe um, to solving a real-life murder? So he finds, Ernest finds himself in that situation. So when I was faced with doing a second novel with Ernest, I thought, well, what's the natural progression here? He's, I've already sort of done the mega fan of murder mysteries inside a murder mystery. So the logical progression, these books are in first person, is that Ernest has written unpublished, everyone in my family has killed someone. So Ernest sort of becomes me in the book. He is the writer of that first book and it's had a moderate success. And so he's been invited to this festival. So it was kind of natural. It was the right place to sort of take him was what, you know, the classic detective would just be hired for another case, but Ernest is not a detective. So how do I, what's next in his life and how do I look at that? And, and publishing a, a, his novel, his version of the first book um, as a memoir was my solution to that. So then I thought, well, who will Ernest be interacting with? Well, he'll be interacting with, writers he'll be interacting with publishers he'll be interacting with agents and and I happen to know a bit about that so I felt like I was pretty in a confident space I thought you know across my couple of decades across the performing arts and behind the scenes in publishing I reckon I can get a pretty good cast of suspects out here and then of course you need a good locked room to trap them in for a great locked room mystery and I originally thought the GAN was too obvious. I thought that somebody has surely done a murder mystery on the GAN before. It's a, it's an affectionate homage to Murder on the Orient Express. Um, and I thought the the desert and the sort of train itself would be too irresistible. So I sort of had the idea and put it away a little bit. And then I sort of researched it a bit and I could not find another murder mystery set on the GAN. So I thought, well, I better do it before someone else does. So all of those things sort of crashed together. It was the setting of the publishing world, um, Ernest's next steps as a writer, and the homage to Agatha Christie that was all too tempting to not write. And even though this is a sequel, it's also a standalone. Like it's really, you, you have um, Ernest, obviously, and it continues his story, but you can read this on its own. And in fact, you cheekily kind of make reference in the book that Ernest's um, agent or, or publisher says to him, you've got to kind of drop in enough, enough hints about the first book so that people will want to go and buy that, right? <laughs> Yeah, so his agent tells him that sequels have to be different and exactly the same at the same time. And one of Ernest's sort of personal struggles in this book is he's trying to write a second book and he thinks that sequels are always terrible, which is a very thin veil between the character and the author on those pages, let me tell you. Um, but, yeah, it's it's. I wanted to do, you know, the traditional classic mysteries, um, you just 
put them down and pick them up. Sherlock Holmes doesn't really have a big arc. I mean, aside from sort of Moriarty, they're all sort of individual and the characters don't really sort of even grow book to book or change, you know, you're reading it for the case and the puzzle and they can just pick it up. So I really wanted my books to reflect that you could just same detective, new case, and you could pick them up and go in at any point. Um, but also they are a series in earnest is, is a real person. He's not a, um, he's not an ambiguous genius detective. So I have to also grow him through the books as well. So there's things that um, I hope reward readers of the first book. And likewise, I think if you read this one first and then go back to the first book, I think it will be rewarding as well. And there's a couple of cameos from my favourite surviving characters from the first book in this one. But Ernest is very clear that he's not going to spoil the first one and so you can enjoy each mystery standalone. So your first novel was Greenlight and then Other Side of Midnight and then, of course, the ridiculously mega success, um, Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, and now this. Backtrack, if you will, we'll come back to this, but backtrack, if you will, to remind me, I know we've had you on the podcast before, but um, why? Do, since when did you want to write novels? I mean, I think I've got that kind of cliched, uh, writer origin story where I'd always wanted to write books as a kid and I always sort of dreamed about it and I remember I sent off a manuscript when I was a teenager um, printed it out and sent it to all these publishers in Sydney I grew up in Canberra and got all these nice little notes back who clearly were just like oh let's not crush this teenager's dreams but come on he's terrible um, so I did that and then I sort of got a bit distracted. I started doing stand-up comedy. I've been doing that for 15 years and I was enjoying the creativity of that and the kind of um, writing a book, you do so much on your own until you're able to share it with anybody um, and then finding sort of uh, a publisher and readers in bookshops is sort of a whole nother thing. With stand-up comedy, if you've got yourself and a microphone, you can walk on stage at an open mic night and have the instantaneous response. So I think I found that creative outlet there instead. And then I just got to a point where, and I think a lot of writers say this or think this, where I was enjoying a lot of novels, but I wasn't like absolutely adoring any. So um, by which I mean, I was reading a lot of great novels, but I was reading nothing that I thought was absolutely perfect for me. Um, and so I decided that I would sit down and try and write the exact type of book that I would love to read. And um, and that's how I sort of got back into it and, and started pursuing it more seriously again. So your first two novels, though, are, I mean, they're page turners and they're explosive and they're, they're great stories, but they're conventional, they're more conventional crime thriller type novels. And then you go into something that is, quirky it's funny it's really different what made you take that leap or what made you think I'm going to write something really different now because those other novels were great <laughs> yeah absolutely well so the first two as you say they're sort of um they're sort of regular crime novels and one of the things when I was writing those is I really wanted to be taken seriously as a writer that was very important to me um which I look back on now and I think is such an interesting way to feel when you publish your first novel. And so I was, I wanted to be taken seriously as a crime novelist and I didn't want my comedy to overlap into that. Um, and I think that when I sat down to write Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone, I realised that by doing that, 
I was leaving half of my skill set behind. So I think that I'm a good crime novelist and I think I'm a good mystery writer, but I'm also a good comedian. So just doing one of them was sort of only doing half my skill set. And I wasn't sure when I started writing Everyone in My Family Has Killed Someone whether people would sort of like the the quirkiness. Um, I mean, really, it is still a murder mystery rather than a comedy, but I just wanted it to be a fun roller coaster. And I wasn't sure whether people would, would sort of engage with it or like it. But what I realised in thinking back to how I wrote my first two novels was I was so set on wanting everybody to like it. I just wanted everybody to like it, um, which sounds like quite a simple thing but what I realized when I was writing family was that I don't care if a thousand people like it I want one person to love it so I decided to try and write the book that maybe would be one person's favorite book and the only way to do that is to be sort of different and sort of lean into that side of me that I wasn't doing on the first two books and what's really surprised me is there are thousands of people with my exact sense of humour and, and who connected with the book in a way that that I don't think you get when you're just trying to do something down the middle that you hope everybody likes. Um, so I think that trying to make everybody like something um, is sometimes at the cost of making a core group of people really, really love something. But also, you know, the first two books, they have the same sort of you can see the bones in them. I've had a lot of readers read and enjoy everyone in my family has killed someone and everyone on this train is a suspect and then go back to Greenlight and either side of midnight. And they've said, look, they're very different books and they're a lot darker, um, but I can see the bones in it. Greenlight has some sort of black humour in it. Either side of midnight is a locked room mystery. Um, and so I'm sort of building myself up to what would sort of break me through, which was everyone in my family. So when one reads novels, sometimes you do go, oh, geez, I think I could do better. <laughs> Whether that's true or not is, is is another thing, but you do think that. And then some of you go, oh, my God, this is so amazing. I'm, I'm not worthy. I could never get there. And I think that when you read this, you think the latter, oh, my God, this is so amazing. This guy's brain is must be next level. But, gee, it also sounds like he had so much fun. Was it fun or was it hard work? It was both. It was definitely both. And I'll say that I read books all the time and think, oh, this is so good. Um, you know, I'll never get there. One of the reasons everyone in my family has killed someone is set at the snow is because of how good Australian writers are setting things in the desert, in the dirt. Jane Harper, Chris Hammer, you know, I'm reading those books thinking I, I can't. I'm not as good. So I'm like, you know what? I'm going to go as far away from the desert as I can, which is the snow. So, you know, I definitely feel like that as well. But I think, yeah, I had, I wanted to have fun writing it. I was writing this sort of near the start of the pandemic and I didn't really know sort of, you know, it sounds dramatic now, but what are bookshops going to look like in five years when we get out the other end of this? Will we ever get out the end of, end of this? All this kind of thing. So I pledged to myself that I wasn't going to let any idea sit in the drawer. Authors, often we think, okay, that's a great idea, but maybe I'm not talented enough to pull it off or maybe that's too hard or maybe that's not me, maybe that's someone else. And we put it in the drawer um, really because we're scared of it. And so for this book, I took the drawer and sort of shook it upside down and said, I don't know what book publishing is going to look like in five years, so I'm going to write the book that I'm never going to regret having not written it. 
and just do everything in it. But also, yeah, I was keeping myself entertained. I wanted to just really have fun with it because I think that if the writer's having fun, then the reader's having fun. So I was always trying to surprise myself, make myself laugh, make myself gasp, and that's how it came together. So with um, uh, Family, um, the, the one before this, it's been sold in like 27 territories. It's going to be a HBO TV series. It won a billion awards. Um, did you expect that <laughs> while you were writing? No, def- definitely not. Um, we haven't won any awards to my knowledge. We've been shortlisted. You've been for shortlisted a for a billion awards. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, no, it takes it takes me by surprise. I mean, it's what you hope. And I think when when I finished the book, I had a feeling and it felt kind of special to me. It felt like I'd really, at that point in my career, written the best book that I could. Um, and I think that as an author, you've never written your best book is sort of the way I try and think of it. But when I finished that one, I thought, okay, this is definitely better than the first two. And, and I hope that some people connect with it and like it. And then it started trickling, you know, a couple of international languages and territories started to like it and we started making a couple of sales and that was really excited. And then I thought, well, maybe people are really um, are really going to like this one. And then, you know, the phone calls from Hollywood and the success here started. And um, then I was like, oh, oh, we we're onto something. So it definitely was a huge surprise. I'm still flabbergasted every time. I just went on my honeymoon um, and we went through Italy and I just kept seeing it, the Italian edition in the bookshops. And I emailed my publisher and I'm like, can I just check? Are we, are we like a bestseller in Italy? And they're like, oh yeah, it's huge in Italy. And I'm like, oh, I'm there. So I got to have lunch with my publisher and, and, and I was just sort of blown away. Like I, couldn't believe it so it keeps surprising me every time um every time I I sit and think about just how many people have enjoyed the book it sort of blows me away that's incredible what's been your involvement with the um tv series and where is that at do you know yeah so I don't can't really say much about where it's at partly because I don't really know. And there's other things that I do know that I don't know how they sort of translate. So in terms of timing and stuff, I've got no idea. Um, I'm glad that both of the strikes have ended and that the actors and the writers have a deal that they're happy with because that's more important than just me making my show. Um, But we were on a bit of a break for a little while. So basically we're back at it there. In terms of my involvement, um, the great thing about the team that we went with, which was Made Up Stories, which is Bruno Papandreou's um, production company, which made Big Little Lies and The Dry, and HBO um, as the network. You know, they've been extremely collaborative with me and and we sort of share ideas and they ask for my input and stuff. But also I'm totally happy for them to go and make the show that they'd like to make. I very much see it as an adaptation. Um, there's things that I don't know that you can't do in film that I just put in the book so you know authors often talk about changes and stuff and I'm just trying to be pretty chill and you know it's going to be really exciting for me to see it um but yeah it's got a really great collaborative um approach they're they're really lovely the team to work with and I'm looking forward to it picking up steam as we as we go on but it's in a really good spot at the moment and um things are moving along nicely 
One of the things about um, that book was you often made references to things like, um, and this isn't exact, but it's things like, and now you're at page 37, or when you get to page 106, such and such happens. And I was reading it going, how, <laughs> how in the world did he do this? Because the level of detail that, and the level of going back and changing things once pages move and stuff like that um, is insane. How in the world did you do that? I mean, uh... <laughs> the answer is spreadsheets, many, many spreadsheets. Um, but also it was really, really difficult. So for listeners who haven't read it, in the opening chapter, the narrator says, look, if you want to skip to the good bits, all of the murders in this book happen on pages 21, 36, 112, two people die on 214, et cetera, et cetera. And he sort of, the idea there is is sort of that as he's writing it down, um, it's an exercise in suspense. You know, can I subvert your expectations by basically spoiling a crime novel and telling you he's going to die on page seven? But then when you're on page seven and nobody's died and there's four people standing in a room, you start to think, well, one of them is about to die. So it's a very deliberate kind of mechanism and really, really fun and really playful. And, and readers have come up to me and sort of marked the pages and had a lot of fun playing along. So that's what I'm all about. I'm all about the reader playing along with the mystery and it's a function of that. But getting them right was an absolute chore. My poor editor, um, who every time we went to the play, the typesetter, we would double check the pages um, and make sure that they were all perfect. I rewrote the book for the ebook and the audiobook. They're different versions. So the audiobook refers to a listener instead of a reader. And you know, five minutes to go instead of twenty pages to go, and the ebook um, refers to it as an ebook in percentages and stuff. So it's very much a function of the format. I'm I'm really one of the things I really like, and I think applies really well to murder mysteries is the actual experience of having the book in your hand. And so anything I can do to sort of elevate that to make the reader aware that they're reading a book, and so that they're sort of understanding how that contributes to the rules of a puzzle. So a basic example is if, you, if you're halfway through the book and the detective reveals who they think the killer is, you know it's not the killer because the physical book in your hand has too many pages left. So how do I play with that kind of play along with the reader and help them solve the mysteries? But getting the page numbers right was a big task and everybody chipped in and I'm really, really pleased that it turned out the way that it has because it's, it's such a fun device. Oh, yeah, it's absolutely super, super clever. But what happens in Italy or Germany where the word lengths are different and sentences, sentence lengths are different and stuff like that? Like, do they have to get a copy of your spreadsheet and repaginate everything? Uh, yeah, so they've got the spreadsheet, which has the pages in which all of the deaths happen and the sentence to which that page number is attributed. And then they go back and they swap all the page numbers. Now, I can't read Italian or German uh, at a novel length. So it's kind of a matter of trust, as is all translation. There was a fantastic article, I think, in The New Yorker about the process of translation and how it's not as easy as just translating the the sort of words one by one you've got to get the meaning and the pace of the sentence and everything and so it's I hope it's an exciting challenge for the translators and they don't hate me too much um but yeah all the different editions will be their own beasts um for different reasons in different languages and of course you know they can always fall back on the 
the ebook translates a little bit more easily. So I don't know. Some people may have used the ebook, which just refers to the chapters instead of the page numbers. I think if I was a translator, I would totally be cursing you. Um, with this book, you do similar things, but did you um, adjust your approach a little bit based on what you know now to make it slightly less complicated or, or less, you know, moving parts? So that was the idea. So in this book, um, Ernest tells us that one of the important rules of murder mystery fiction is that the killer is a major character. And this comes from, in the 1930s, um, S.S. Van Dyne in 1929 wrote a list of how to write murder mysteries. And one of the rules in that list was that um, the butler can't do it. So it can't be any of the service staff. And it was because it was too common at the time that they would show up at the end and it would be the maid. Um, so the rule is that it's got to be a major character. And to prove this, Ernest says that he is going to use the killer's name 106 times throughout the novel. So every now and then, Ernest will stop the book and give you a count of how many times everyone's name has showed up in the novel. So this person's been named 45 times. This person's been named 50 times. This person's been named 60 times to sort of have you think about who's the most likely villain out of the list of them. So I thought that would be a really fun kind of play along style, the same way as the first one. And it would be heaps easier for me to write. And it was so much harder um, because the deaths in the book never really moved structurally. So when I was adjusting page numbers, I might have to change 192 to 191 or whatever if this happens on this page. But when you're editing a book and, you know, one of the things of the novel is that near the end, five or six characters are all on sort of 97 mentions so that, you know, there's sort of nine to go and 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 they're all exact. So, and also it's a murder mystery. So not everyone's who they say they are or, you know, so you've got to add some together. You've got to subtract some, et cetera, et cetera. So it was very delicate. And then you hand in the book and the editor says, well, this paragraph on page 10 is superfluous. And I say, oh, I used this character's name three times in that paragraph. And now I've got to put them back in somewhere else three times or cut three times out of those four other characters it was supposed to be even with. So it was really mathematically complex trying to figure out how many times to use the names and to edit the book well um, and not ruin the tallies. Oh, my God. So a lot harder for you but a lot easier for the translator or whoever is transposing it to, you know. I think so. I think so. I think easier for the translator, yes. Oh my goodness. Okay. So one of the, it's, it's, it's a whole lot of writers on this train and one of the writers, I won't say who, even though it's not really a spoiler, um, gets a one-star review on Goodreads. Yeah. Has that occurred to you? I mean, well, in, yeah, in the book, it's another writer gives that writer a one-star w- review. And I'm sort of playing with all of the things that happen to us writers that may be motivation for murder um so one star goodreads review who goes on your cover the blurb the endorsement blurb you know all those kind of things are possible motives for murder in this world um so yeah i've absolutely got one star reviews i've never got one from a publishing colleague um but it certainly interests me you know it's a very public facing platform you could just go on and give 
you know, you could say to someone's face, oh, I really love the book and then give them one star online and they'd see it. Um, and I was just really interested in that, you know, what would happen if that did happen? I mean, Australian writers are so lovely. I, I don't think anybody would uh, would do that to another person's Goodreads page, but it just fascinated me as an idea and I thought I'd explore it. Um, I love the, I, I just love the, the, the whole way it plays out. And I'm always in awe of, um, you know, crime and, and mystery writers because of the complexity of the plot and that everything has to fit together and make sense. And you have to keep the reader guessing. So in terms of, let's take this novel as an example, in terms of this novel, did you know what was going to happen? Yeah, hundred percent. So I don't start writing until I have two things. One is, the plot, which is fairly obvious, um, but, you know, I need all the puzzles, I need all the anagrams, all the ciphers, all the number problems that contribute to this kind of mystery. I need them because I'm writing towards them. So, and I need to know who done it, um, be that one or several people, and I need to know who dies. And between that, I can give myself a little bit of flexibility, but I tend to plot it fairly heavily as well. So um, maybe the bit I give myself the most flexibility is sort of, let's say there's seven red herrings. Maybe I know five of them and maybe I let the other two surprise me because red herrings don't necessarily mess with the plot. But I think you also need to know them up the top because otherwise you are interjecting clues or wrong turns later. And I, I just always feel like a reader, I can sort of feel when something's being dropped in um, at a later stage. So I want it to all feel very natural. And what it comes down to for me is the characters. I mean, if every character has a goal and something in their way of that goal, then they're going to try to get it and try to get through what's in their way to get it. And that can be the murderer. And that can also be the people who aren't the murderers, but because they you know what they want, it's going to make them feel like they're a murderer because they're, they've got their secrets. So if you don't know that, then they might not feel like a murderer. So that's one thing. And then the other thing I don't start my book until I have is the 30-second elevator pitch. This book's about this, six riders on a train, five detectives, four nights, three days, two weapons, one murder, you know, that kind of thing. So I have that in my head because it's super useful for the sales team at Penguin. Um, but also it's super useful for me every time I sort of feel like I'm lagging in the book. I think, well, what's the sizzle? What's the real pitch here? Um, I know this is what's going to excite readers. So can I excite myself again with it? So I always try and have that 30 second pitch just ready in my head before I start writing on top of having the whole plot, basically. When you say you've thought through the whole plot, what does that actually look like? I mean, presumably you have a lot of thinking time, which is great, but then do you actually write down quite a long outline or do you have index cards or what does it look like before you start writing? Yeah, so I'm pretty neat. I write a five to 10,000 word plot synopsis that breaks down all the plot beats. I print it out and I carry it around with me. And by the end of the book, it's tatted as hell. Other than that, I don't really make notes or adjust it. Um, I sort of have that so that I can go back to it. And then as I write, I make the natural changes. You know, when you write out a plot synopsis, it just kind of some stuff which looks good in short form when you get to it, maybe doesn't have the character motivations or the realism to sort of pull it off. So you can find yourself 
um, changing the plot as you go. But I won't change the synopsis. I'll just keep my original and then I'll just go from start to the end all in my head. I didn't have, and I don't like writing things down. I don't have post-it notes. Um, it's a bit messy for me and I'll spend all day kind of rejigging or rewriting or replanning or going to office works and buying a planner and then writing in that and then that's half a day. Um, so I really just find those modes of procrastination. But I did have a, I have a one post-it note on my um, laptop screen or my desktop screen for every book. And for family, that post-it note said two things. It said, make it colder because I wanted to make the most of the atmosphere in the snow resort. And it said, make it warmer because I wanted the characters to feel lived in. I wanted them to sort of like each other, even though, so the first draft of it, they were all sort of killing each other off willy-nilly and I wanted to make them feel like a family even though they're a broken family so make it cold and make it warmer and then on everyone in this train as a suspect I had a post-it note which just said the word legacy because Ernest is writing things down and he's thinking about how he preserves the memory of his dead family by publishing a book about them so legacy sort of ran through that book um, so I try to have one post-it note for every book and that's about it. And so um, are you already writing the third one in this series? Yes. Yep. So I'm blazing away at that. Um, I can't tell you what it's called, but it's, or even who features, you know, who knows who survives everyone on this train is a suspect, but it's called everyone da-da-da-da-da-da. <laughs> yes. And have you been on the GAN? Did you do that specifically as research? Yes. I've been on it twice, actually. I just got back yesterday from it oh um, so your out of office was real i was telling people that it would be a joke no i was genuinely <laughs> on the train so i did it about a year ago to research the book this was when i was about halfway through and i was just checking details which was really great it was an amazing trip um and we my wife and i we had a great time and i also just sort of checked some details asking the staff where you could hide a body that kind of totally regular passenger thing um, and then once I'd finished the book, we thought, well, let's send it to Journey Beyond, who run the GAN, to see if they like it um, and to see if they're offended by how many people show up dead during this luxury trip of theirs. And so then they got back to us and said, we've read it and we absolutely love it. And would you like to come on the GAN and do a talk about your book? To which I said, that's the plot of the book. And the writers don't turn out too good. So here I am on a train talking about a book set on a train where a writer talks about the book and gets murdered. It's some inception level stuff, um, which was really quite fun. But yeah, we just got back yesterday and it was once again, it was a, it was a fantastic trip. It was it's weird doing a once in a lifetime trip twice in 12 <laughs> months. What um, if the GAN said we don't like it and it's bad PR for us? Well, I don't really know. I didn't really think about it that way, to be perfectly honest. I mean, I honestly didn't think about it because, you know, it's a novel. It, it, it's got, it shares the name, but, um, you know, everything is fictional and everything's acknowledged to be fictional. But um, they were really in the spirit of it and really, really yeah. loved the book. So a bit of fun. Awesome. Um, and now what did your... your um... Um, in terms of how you spend your time, because you, in terms of your comedy and in terms of your writing, because your writing's gone bonkers, um, how, what does that look like? 
at the moment? Yeah, that's a great question that I'm figuring out. So <laughs> time is such a precious resource, I think. And the better these books go, the more people ask me um, if I'd be interested in amazing opportunities. So it's balancing what I can conceivably achieve without cutting the quality of the work. That's that's what it's really about for me. It's the quality. So really, I just, I'm just i just going to keep saying yes to stuff until I have a breakdown is my sort of strategy. But for the, for the touring comedy, we did sort of, in order for me to write Train, it meant that I couldn't write a comedy show to tour in 2024 so it sort of has to be a book or a show really is the choice that I make um but yeah we still I mean you know that's just to go on tour I still gig all the time and the great thing about comedy is you know I've got 15 years worth of material I can pull out of the bag if I want to go and do a gig um so that's that's really fun so we're still doing that as much as possible and I'm I'm writing yeah like a bat out of hell I think you know I'm very aware that writers' careers hopefully last for a long time, but there's a certain period in which you're being paid attention to. And I thought that, well, since family has done well and since that attention has has, has come for me um, a little bit and readers and stuff, um, then I'm going to make the most of it and try and give them great work to hopefully build that into longevity, but also if it's just a purple patch and then I, um, and then it all comes tumbling down, then I'll have had a great few years. So I'm just working as hard as I can at the moment. So when you say you're writing uh, like about out of hell, um, in terms of your writing process, then how many hours a day when you're in the depths of writing a manuscript, how many hours a day would you dedicate to it? Or do you measure it by word count or what kind of discipline or structure do you have in your life? Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of things I try and do. I'm really bad at measuring daily word counts because I'm very, very slow. So the writers who churn out a thousand words a day, I admire. Um, I do three to five hundred, and I think that's pretty good. Um, and then I have days off because I'm creatively burnt. I mean, I think that comedy is really tricky. Comedy is all about using as few words as possible and rewriting a sentence 15 times. So those 300 words are my thousand words. Um, I also edit really fastidiously. So I edit everything I wrote the day before, before I start on the new day's writing, which I'm learning to try and do less of because it takes a long time and it drains a lot of your actual writing energy. But it's also the way that I write drafts. And so that by the time I get to the end of the first draft, I feel confident. Um, what's a better way of saying this to to your listeners who are writers? Um, I don't sort of do three or four drafts. I have one draft. Um, but that's not to say I churn it out and it's perfect. I'm I'm drafting and redrafting as I go. And I don't do another sentence until I'm happy with everything that's gone before it, be that the last chapter I wrote, or if I'm right at the end, it means the entire 330-page manuscript is perfect before I write the next sentence to get me to the end. So I'm very progressive as a writer. I go through the manuscript piece by piece and build it. Um, so in terms of scheduling, you know, I probably spend the morning editing what I did yesterday and the afternoon writing. I'm really 
annoyingly, I sort of hit my straps around like 4 p.m., which is such an annoying time to be productive. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I'm also accustomed to riding on planes and in trains and in hotels and, you know, wherever I can squeeze five minutes of riding, I try and do. So I'm very much that type of writer as well. So I try to be well structured, but it's when it comes, it comes. Awesome. And finally, what would your top three tips be for listeners who are aspiring writers and they'd love to be in a position where you are one day? Yeah, three tips. I have one and I'll think of the others as I say this. Um, <laughs> you know, this is the most predictable one that you'll get from writers, which is that you've got to read. You've got to read widely and you've got to read often. Um, partly because, as I was saying before, one of the reasons I became a writer is because I wanted to write something that I wasn't seeing on the shelves. And if you're not reading, you won't know where those gaps are. But I would add to that that you need to read what you love and you also need to read what you don't like or what you're not expecting to like. Because reading something that surprises you by how much you like it, even if it's not something you're expecting to, will teach you how that person has won you over even though you don't read fantasy or whatever. And so you can learn things in that book. And reading things that you don't like is valuable because it will teach you how to, what you could improve. So even on kind of a general level, we've all seen a film and walked out and thought that was bad for these reasons. And and looking at something that you don't like and identifying the bits that you would fix, you know, that's that's a huge turning your editorial brain. If you only read stuff that you love and that you admire, then all you're going to try and do is, is be as good as them, which can be quite deflating, as we talked about before. So reading something that you think you can improve on works a whole different part of your brain. So I would say that. Um, I would say that... Just be aware that publishing is luck. Luck and timing combine to make a book a success. But luck will only hit the people who have done the work to be standing in the right spot so that the luck can hit them. You know, you do have to be lucky, but you can make yourself stand in front of it is, is the thing I would say. And then the last thing is if you're working on a manuscript, no matter how hard it is, no matter if it doesn't wind up getting published, no matter, you know, any of those outside reasons, finish it because when you're working on your next one, you're going to think this is really hard and I can't do it. And you want to look back on one and say, I've done it before. It's like running a marathon, you know, halfway through you go, this is impossible. I won't do it. So sometimes the only thing that sort of keeps you going is knowing that you can do it because you've done it before. So even if you lose passion for a book that you sort of know isn't going to be the book that cuts you through and you're excited for a new idea to start writing, I mean, you've got to write what your fingers are telling you to write, but um, I would recommend writing the end on it because then whatever project you're in, 10 years down the line, you'll think I did do it. It was hard, but I did do it. Um, and that really helped. That helped me. I've got a novel that never published just like everyone else. So, but looking back on it and thinking, I did get to the end of that one. I can get to the end of this one is really helpful. Brilliant. Everyone get a copy of everyone on this train is a suspect. It's an absolute cracker. And, um, 
highly recommended. Thank you so much for your time today, Benjamin. Thanks very much. What, what a blast. We're almost at the end of this week's episode and I'm going to leave you with not a fun fact, but a fun game, but a big warning. It is very addictive. Spell Tower is a mobile phone game where you essentially build words out of available letters in a grid. There are different modes and you can compete against your own personal best scores or other players. It's a lot like Bookworm, which I always play on the airplane if they have it on the console. Anyway, if you need a distraction and you like words, this is a terrific way to lose hours. But you have been warned, set a timer before you start. You can check it out at spelltower.com. Spell as in like spelling, spell tower as in the big tall thing, spelltower.com. All right, we've come to the end of this week's episode. Thank you so much for hanging out with me. I've really enjoyed bringing this episode to you and I hope you enjoyed the chat with Benjamin Stevenson. If you'd like to connect with the listener community on social media, just go to Facebook and search for So You Want To Be A Writer podcast community and request to join. Love to have you in there. It's free to join people from all walks of life, from all over the place at different stages of writing. It's where we can share ideas, potentially meet other people who you might you might form a writer's group or get um, some beta readers or something. Uh, all right. So you can also connect with me on social media at Valerie Koo. That's K-H-O-O on Twitter and Instagram and over at ValerieKoo.com where you'll get some behind the scenes into my other life. All right. Thanks for listening, everyone. And I look forward to chatting to you again next time. Thanks for listening to So You Want to Be a Writer. You'll find the show notes at writercenter.com.au slash podcast or sign up for our awesome and often hilarious weekly newsletter at writercenter.com.au slash news where you'll find writing resources, giveaways, competitions and much more.